I'll go ahead and start. Maybe a few people will trickle in, but that's okay. <clears throat> the uh, Buddha's teaching and, and our path of practice can really be seen in a number of different ways. And the Buddha really expressed his teaching in various ways depending on the situation and his audience. And this was really his genius in, in some ways that he had this skill of offering what was really most useful or helpful at any given time or place. And as well, when we, as our path unfolds, there may be times when certain aspects of the teachings are highlighted naturally or more important or uh, meaningful for us at any particular time in our practice. So we may see the path in terms of the Four Noble Truths, this core teaching on the the truth, the cause, the cessation, and the path leading to the end of suffering. And leading on from that in terms of the Eightfold Noble Path and the trainings in Sila, Samadhi, and Panya. Or at other times, we may hear the teachings or relate to the understanding of what are called the three marks of existence, the three universal characteristics of anicca, dukkha, and anatta, this changing, unsatisfactory, impersonal, coreless nature of experience. And at other times we may look at the practice in terms of stages of insight and stages of realization, of enlightenment or in terms of the uprooting or abandoning of the kilesas, these three unwholesome roots of greed and hatred and delusion, confusion. And in some traditions, the teachings are even expressed in terms of realizing one's own Buddha nature in the moment, or resting in the natural great perfection of the heart and mind. So all these ways may to talk to us at different times in our path and as the practice unfolds. And there's another way that we can see the path that's summed up very succinctly in this verse from the Dhammapada. And I touched on this last week when I, in the talk on metta, in the verse, the translation I have here, it's to abandon the unwholesome, to cultivate the wholesome, and to purify the heart. This is the teaching of the Buddhas. And we really can see the entire path in this way as cultivating that which leads to happiness and peace, freedom, and abandoning that which leads to suffering and unhappiness. This is from Sayadat Ujjotaka, a teacher in Burma. He said, freedom really means knowing what is useful what is beneficial and worthwhile, knowing what is wholesome and unwholesome, and choosing what is wholesome, good, and right, and doing it wholeheartedly. And I think it's this quality, this aspect of doing a thing wholeheartedly that's really key here, really bringing the fullness of our intention in this practice of cultivating the wholesome. And as I spoke about last week, it's, it's uh, 
talked about in the teachings in terms of what are called the ten paramis, these noble qualities of heart and mind. I thought I'd actually read the list of the whole, all ten of them tonight. Many of you know these, but some of you might not have heard them all. So the first one is dana, generosity, sila, ethical conduct or morality, nekama is renunciation, panya, wisdom, virya, energy, kanti, patience, satcha, truthfulness, aditana is resolution, metta, loving kindness, and upeka, equanimity. And these are the these qualities the Buddha is said to have developed and perfected over countless lifetimes and are spoken about in the teaching fables, the Jataka tales. And we may have some difficulty relating to the idea of somehow perfecting, qual- cultivating these qualities in our hearts and minds. Sometimes we might feel as though we're born with a certain amount of kindness or patience or energy, and that's just the way it is. Or we may even define ourselves as being an impatient or lazy person. And see ourselves compared to others and feel that we'll never measure it up to some standard that we may have in our minds about what it would mean to perfect these qualities, that we'll never possibly be as loving or wise as, as someone who we hold up as a high standard. But our hearts and minds really can change. We can bring our attention to this. We can bring our mindfulness and intention to bear in these areas in our lives. And really, we highlight our own innate wisdom, our inner goodness. And by doing this, we allow it to grow and blossom and flower, to bear fruit. And the Buddha spoke about this in terms of where we place our intention and attention that where we place our minds is really of great importance. And again, in the Dhammapada, he said this, mind is the forerunner of all things. Mind is their chief. They are all mind made. If with an impure mind one speaks or acts, suffering follows him like the wheel of the cart follows the foot of the ox. Mind is the forerunner of all things. Mind is their chief. They are all mind made. If with a pure mind a person speaks or acts, happiness follows her like her never departing shadow. So tonight I want to talk about the first of these paramis, these beautiful qualities of heart and mind, which is dana or generosity, giving. And it's said that the Buddha taught the practice of dana, practices of dana and sila before ever teaching any kind of bhavana or mind development, like the meditation practices we do here. He saw these as being really the foundation of meditation. And it's been talked about in terms of our conduct of sila. And this is pretty obvious if we're living with care in a harmless way and our minds are more calm, we're not caught up in worry or regret so much. And it's much easier to, to meditate when the heart is at ease. 
But why would generosity be seen as a foundation? Why is this something upon which the, the wisdom practices would rest? Generosity, dana, is the expression in the world of non-greed. In essence, it functions as a sort of counter to the forces of greed and clinging in the mind. And so when we practice generosity, we strengthen this wholesome mental factor of non-greed. And this really becomes a force for liberation in our lives. The Buddha taught that it is just this force of clinging this grasping and clinging in the mind that keeps us bound and leads to suffering. It's really the, this is the second noble truth. The cause of suffering is this clinging, grasping in the mind. And acts of generosity really work as an antidote to this. Because as we practice giving, we're learning to let go and we're practicing non-grasping. And the Buddha really praised this power and the practice of generosity throughout the teachings. This is from the Itivuttaka. He said, if beings knew as I know the benefits of giving and sharing, they would not even eat without having given, nor would the stain of miserliness overcome their minds. Even if it were their last bite, their last mouthful, They would not eat without having shared if there were someone to receive their gift. And in the Anguttara Nikaya, he said this, even if a person throws the rinsings of a bowl or a cup into a village pool or pond, thinking, may whatever animals that live here feed on this, that would be a great source of merit. Over the past couple of decades now, I've had a lot of chances to travel and live in Asia, especially in India and Thailand and and most of all in Burma. I've had a chance to live as a monk on more than one occasion. And almost every winter I go to a a small monastery in Upper Burma near in the Sagaing Hills, uh, not far from Mandalay where I've been helping to manage a retreat since 1997. And in these countries, there's a a way that uh, the practice of giving permeates the culture. And it's a way that we don't see so much in the West. There's an understanding and a valuing of the practice of generosity that's really lovely and very inspiring to see. And this is not to say that Generosity doesn't exist in the West. It does, of course. And there are abundant examples of the expression of generosity here at home. When we only have to look at the huge outpouring of offerings at times when natural disasters have struck. And people are very, very generous in that way in offering when people are in need and Usually this kind of giving takes the form of philanthropy or volunteerism and all the different ways that we make donations in times of need. But in the Buddhist countries where I've spent time, there's a a way that the practice of giving is held a little bit differently, at least at times. 
because it is really seen as an integral part of one's spiritual path, both in terms of its function as a foundation upon which the wisdom practices rests, and also in terms of its meritorious nature. There's a Pali word for merit is punya. And those of you who have been chanting the metta practice in the evenings at the very end, there's a line that has, uh, uses the word punya as part of it. We dedicate the merit of the practice of the chanting. And this concept of merit of punya is central to Buddhism. It's really, really in the heart of it. But it's often misunderstood in the West. I think it can seem foreign to us. I know for myself, when I first encountered the concept of merit, I had a really strong reaction against it because it seemed to somehow imply that my actions would were done because I expected or some kind of reward. I remember I many years ago. I had volunteered to set up the place and run a rains retreat for some monks, Ajahn Amaro, some of you may know him and some others. It was before they, they had the land at Abayagiri where they live now. And uh, they were just trying to get established in California. So I, I put in a lot of time setting up a place and building a kitchen and plumbing in some water lines and setting up the lodging for the monks for that rains period. And uh, at some point, I think Ajahn Amaro or someone said, well, there's a lot of merit in your doing this. And I, I didn't want anything to do with it. it. It felt wrong to me as though I were somehow offering my time, expecting some reward. But actually, when we understand merit, it means that we're acknowledging that our wholesome actions our skillful actions have a power in our lives that extends beyond the occasion of any actual deed that we might do. Essentially, it's an understanding that wholesome actions bear positive fruit, positive results, and that this goodness informs not only the present moment, but extends into the future as well. And along with this, there's the understanding that this merit can be dedicated not only to our own benefit and welfare and our own awakening, but that we can share this and offer this to the benefit for the benefit of others as well. And in Theravada Buddhism, at least, there are considered to be three bases for merit, three arenas where merit arises, and it corresponds to the teaching in of dana and sila and bhavana that I spoke about earlier. So in these three areas of giving and of virtue or ethical conduct and in mental development and bhavana are the areas where merit is said to arise. And so there's not an implication that we do these things, that we practice generosity or keep our sila or, or meditate because we're expecting some kind of reward in our heavenly bank account or something, that we expect something. But it's the fact that we acknowledge and we really, in a way, we take great delight in the power and the goodness that results from these actions. 
And we can also consciously dedicate this energy for our benefit, for our awakening, and for the benefit and the welfare and the happiness of all beings. And in Burma, it's, people do this. They always dedicate the merit and they always dedicate their, for themselves and for others. One of my teachers, Sayada Ulakana, who's the, the abbot at the monastery in Chaswa in Upper Burma, where I help with the retreat in the winters, he really insists on this when people offer meal dana or some other act of generosity. He really insists that they, they bring to mind that, that the merit of this be dedicated for their, for their liberation and that it be dedicated that it not be done without bringing this to mind. And when we dedicate the merit of our wholesome actions, it allows us to bring to mind our highest aspirations in that moment. And we connect with others through our wishes for their welfare and happiness as well. And the beautiful thing is that our, the merit actually increases through the generosity of sharing. So it's a a good win-win situation to give it all away. You get more. Along with the uh, helping to manage the retreat in the wintertime in Burma that I've done for about 12 years now, I work with a small humanitarian aid project that was started at the same time as the retreat. And every time I go to Burma, I'm struck so much by the kindness and generosity of the people there. You know, you can't, you can't visit anywhere without being offered something, even in very, very poor places. And you have to be careful if you admire something when you're visiting someone, because they'll probably give it to you. And in the country, there's the tradition that the teachings are offered for free in the monasteries and meditation centers, there's no charge to go and practice in these places. It's all strictly run on donation. And there's the tradition of the meal dana, which we've instituted here now at, in the West more and more. And it's, it's interesting, sometimes, certain times of the year, I know during the rains retreat period in New Year's time, I remember going to some of the centers wanting to offer a meal and all of the slots were taken already by the, the, the local people. It can be hard sometimes to, to get the date you want. You have to wait during those times. And as I said, I've had the, for me the honor and the privilege to live as a monk for periods of time. And Buddhist monks, bhikkhus, are alms mendicants, which means that they depend on donations, daily donations for their sustenance. They're not allowed to keep food overnight. And so they go on alms round. It's right livelihood for a monk. And this means you walk through the village uh, with a bowl. And there's very strict rules about how you do this when you're a monk. You uh, have to go barefoot and you carry a bowl. You're not allowed to have other things along. And you 
you can't ask for anything. You can stand in the road, and if people notice you and they feel moved, they can put something in your bowl. And uh, there's a lot of rules about the way you go on alms round. I was living at a forest center outside Rangoon for most of a year. And I went on, on this alms round daily uh, for a long period of time. And I was, that was my meal. I was doing the what's kind of dutanga. It's a form of austerity to live only on alms food, one meal a day on alms food. I remember I told myself when I decided to start that, that if I got anything more than rice that first day, I would, that would make that my meal. And I got rice and one slice of papaya. And uh, some days I'd get a lot, and some days I'd get only rice. It was a very poor village there. And it's, a, it's an interesting practice to live only on those offerings that you t- get a, on a daily alms round like that. And it was really interesting and inspiring to me and very humbling to go on alms round that way. And, you know, some people would just plop a spoonful of rice in the bowl in a perfunctory way, because that's what you do when a monk comes by in Burma. And other people would really take such care and um, offer things with such grace, even something very small. And I really had the sense that they were really taking it on as a practice. There's a, uh, some chanting that's done in, in these monasteries in the mornings and evenings. And one of the things that chant, that's chanted is a reflection on the qualities of the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha. And the last line in the in the part that's the reflection on the qualities of the Sangha is Anuttaram Punyaketam Lokasa, which is translated as uh, they give occasion for incomparable goodness to arise in the world. Or sometimes it's translated they are a field of great merit for the, a field for great merit to arise in the world. And I didn't, I'd heard this and chanted this off and on for many years. And I didn't really connect with it so directly. You know, I thought it sounded good. And, uh, yeah, okay. But when I went on alms round for this period of time, there was a way in which it made a very direct and simple sense to me in that it was allowing people to practice this kind of very direct giving in a daily way. And I thought, you know, this has been going on. People have been going on this kind of alms round for every day, at least someone for a long, long time, since long before the time of the Buddha, actually. And there was a connecting with the tradition and with this possibility for, for this great goodness of practicing generosity. So that's one way that I related to that idea that this is a quality of the Sangha. And there was one household along this route that I did every day for months. So I, I became very familiar to the people in the village there. And there was one house, and there was a young woman who would come out to offer something every day. And uh, she, when she first was coming, she'd come by herself to the gate 
And then over time, she came slowly and there were people helping her. She really became very thin and weak and her relatives were helping her to come out to the gate. And she finally, after uh, a few months, she couldn't come out. She was too weak and they invited us to come. There were a few of us who were on this route. They invited us to come into the yard because you, you can't go in unless you're invited, but then you can go. And she needed to sit in a chair because uh, she was too weak to stand. Um, but she still wanted to offer for us. And, and then at a certain point, uh, when, when I went, then she wasn't there one day. And uh, I found out that she had died. She'd, she had cancer and had died. Uh, during that time, and it was just, um, you know, the, the practice of giving was so important and so meaningful that as long as she had any strength at all, she really wanted to be able to do this. There's the monastery I mentioned where I've been helping to run the retreat up in, in Upper Burma. And there's a meal dana like we have here with a board and the people who come on retreat will offer. And also a lot of local families will come. Sometimes a large extended family or even a whole small village will they'll get together and they'll, they'll send a group and they've all pitched in to be able to offer a meal. And it's, it's something they might save up all year to be able to do. And sometimes if it's a family, they'll come the night before and they'll stay up all night cooking to have breakfast because breakfast is eaten very early. And you'll come into the dining area and there'll be 15 or 20 people all lined up who've, who've offered the meal. And they'll sit there and watch you eat. It's an, you have an audience. And it's, it's a little funny at first because... Most of it aren't, us aren't used to having an audience while we eat, kind of. But you try to be very mindful and look good. But uh, they take such, such joy in, in being able to see that, that people are you know, consuming this offering that they've made. There's such delight in their eyes, and they're all sitting really very respectfully. And it's a beautiful thing once you get used to being kind of on on view that way. And it's said that the practice of giving brings happiness in three times. So before one gives, when we're thinking about doing it, and there can be joy that arises and happiness from thinking of making an offering. And then during the actual act of, of the offering, and afterwards when we reflect on our wholesome good action, so we have these three times we can be happy from the practice of generosity. I once was going to give a, a Donna talk kind of like this, shorter one at that retreat. And uh, there's a, a Sayadaw, a monk that we like to visit who lives in a nearby monastery. We call him the Happy Sayadaw. He's over 90 now. And I think he's probably the happiest being I've ever <coughs> encountered. He's, uh, 
he's one of the, those people who, for me, it's worth flying all the way to Burma just to sit with him for an hour. And um, my friends wanted to go see him, and I thought, well, you know, I need to think about what I'm going to say for my talk. And I said, no, no, you don't need to think about it. Come, you have to come. And so I said, well, I'll come, but I want to be able to ask Sayadaw a question. So I, I told him that I needed to talk about Donna and that, uh, you know, it wasn't something that was so understood in the West in some ways. And I asked him if he had any advice for something I could say, some way that I could speak about generosity. And there was a bowl of oranges next to him, and he, he started throwing them at me. <laughs> and uh, he said, <coughs> he said, Donna, you want to know about Donna? He said, he said, this is Donna. He said, without Donna, we wouldn't even be here. None of this would be here. He started, he loves to gesture wildly. None of this would be here. He said, everything is here because of Donna. And, you know, I, I thought, I looked at Donna, I thought, well, actually here in his little monastery, that's very true because it's all been donated. The monks don't earn any money to build things. So people have offered all of those everything there, all of the furniture and the walls and, and the food and his lodging. But then I thought, well, if we think about it, there's so much in our lives that really depends on the kindness and the generosity of others. You know, if we think about all the things, all of the, the kindness and generosity that's helped us to be able to come to a retreat like this, for example, people who've maybe covered for us or helped us to be able to come in one way or another, all the things in our lives that are the result of another's maybe kindness or generosity. So I thought, you know, he's really right. There's so much. I mean, for myself, I've relied on the kindness and generosity of others for a long time in so many ways. And sometimes the results of even a small and what at the time might seem kind of insignificant act of generosity can have really far-reaching consequences. There's a beautiful example of this, uh, again, in this upper Burma area. A um, friend of mine who's a meditation teacher was there uh, doing a retreat. And he's someone, some of you may know, Stephen Smith. He had been a monk at different uh, times and had been practicing in Burma off and on for a long, long time. And he was doing a retreat with a, another monk friend of ours in a small cave at actually staying at a, a nunnery nearby the monastery there. And uh, there was a young woman who was working. A lot of times the young women work as... Um, Laborers, they carry bricks for construction projects, and they'll carry a, a stack of bricks on their heads, and they'll carry them that or, or these metal pans full of cement uh, for building projects. And so this young woman, uh, one day she came to up to Stephen, and she had a can of Coca-Cola, and she offered it to him. And this represented probably 
three days wages for her to purchase a Coke because it's, you can get cheaper Burmese made sodas, but, but a Coke costs a bit more and they don't, they don't make very much there. And so she had, this was a huge offering for her. You know, if you think about your job and giving three days wages to buy a can of soda for someone. And uh, she wanted to get a Coke because that's an American thing and she knew he was from the West. And, and so um, Stephen was very, he was so moved by this act that he uh, talked to Saida Ulakana there at the monastery at Chaswa and, and uh, together they had the idea to, to start this retreat and also to start what's called the Metadana Project, which is this little aid project that I, I help with every year. And uh, we've done a lot of really good projects in the small in Pachet village there. Uh, we raised enough money to build a new school for the village because the old one would get flooded out every monsoon season. And uh, some large additions to the hospital. Saida had started a, a free hospital for the Sangha there. And we started, got a new tuberculosis wing was built. And uh, some paving in front of the hospital to keep the dust down. And we've also been supporting three nunneries that are nearby. And so every year we bring enough money to give a donation to it's, it's about a hundred nuns at these three nunneries. And there's also been an acupuncture training program that was started that's had great success. And uh, there's a team now of acupuncturists who treat people uh, in the, at the hospital and also at clinics in Mandalay, people who are graduates of the, the College of Traditional Medicine in Mandalay who've come. So this, this whole, all this, all these good deeds that flowed out of this initial donation of a single can of Coca-Cola. So as we practice generosity and as it deepens for us, giving in this way can really becomes a a natural expression in the world of non-greed as I mentioned before, and our generosity begins to flow from a connection to others, really a connection to all beings. And there's a growing understanding that our happiness and the happiness of others really is is one and the same thing. And the practice of, of giving can take many forms. You know, we can give materially with money or things when that's appropriate and we're able but also we give our time and our energy in service, in helping, sometimes just allowing someone to be just the way they are as a kind of generosity. And we offer our, our ethical conduct, we offer our sila, our commitment to non-harming. And this leads to what I think is one of the greatest gifts of all that we can offer we can offer fearlessness to others. I mean, that's a huge offering, really. If people can be, feel fearless around us. When we offer this, we become really a refuge for people, a beacon of, of light in the world. 
And the Buddha said that the gift of the Dhamma surpasses all other gifts. I have a beautiful quotation from the Samyutta Nikaya. Giving food, one gives strength. And giving food, one also gives beauty and strength. Giving a vehicle, one gives ease. And giving a lamp, one gives sight. The one who gives a residence is the giver of all. But the one who offers the Dhamma is the giver of the deathless. This idea of the giver of the deathless, one who offers the gift of the, the path to freedom, to liberation. This is said to be the highest gift. Sometimes when we contemplate the idea of giving, and we can sometimes feel as though we'll be somehow diminished by the act, as though we'll have less. But we really come to see that the opposite is, is so true, that by giving we're actually enriched. Practicing generosity in this way develops within us a sense of inner abundance and the feeling that we really have enough to be able to share. And it's not a feeling that's based on any kind of objective criteria in terms of our material wealth, what we have in that way. I mean, there's plenty of, we- of wealthy people who have obvious external abundance, but they may find it difficult to give. They may feel a sense of inner poverty, and so sometimes they'll cling to their possessions. And on the other hand, there are those who are quite poor, at least economically, and yet they're incredibly generous. You know, even when they appear to have very little or really nothing to spare. And I've seen this so often in the world and traveling that it often seems that the poorest people are the most generous. The nuns that we support that project Every time we we have a sort of ceremony we set up, we go from one to the other and we hand donations to each nun. It's really lovely and they chant for us. And they always insist on having us over for breakfast. Each of them, we have to eat three breakfasts. (laughs) And the mohinga, for those of you who've been to Burma, the mohinga breakfast, it's a noodley soup, sort of the essential Burmese dish. And, you know, we always tell them, you know, we shouldn't spend the money on, you know, buying stuff to feed us, but they, there's no way around it. You can't stop them. So how can we connect to this feeling of inner wealth, inner, inner, inner abundance, inner plenty? And one way is to ask ourselves in any moment, What do I really need right now in order to be happy, in order to feel contentment? Because we're so often conditioned to feel that we will never have enough. And at least in this country, it seems at times that our whole economy and 
certainly the world of advertising is, is based on the strategy of convincing us that we don't have enough, that we're in a state of lack of some state where we're lacking something, that we're incomplete now, but if we just get a new whatever it is, you know, then we'll be happy, then we'll be complete. And we're bombarded with these kinds of images and messages. And the sole purpose of them seems to be to convince us that we really need a certain standard of living, certain conditions or things in our lives. But when we look, you know, is this really true? And what do we really need to feel happy? I had a really striking example of this very early in my practice. I was in Bodh Gaya in India, practicing at the Thai Vihara there, the Thai temple. And uh, the conditions were somewhat austere. I was sleeping on a straw mat underneath the main temple, um, which wasn't your usual idea of a basement. You could stand up in a few places, but mostly it wasn't quite tall enough to stand. And it was just a dirt area down there. It was not a finished out room. It was under the building. And uh, there were a bunch of us down there. And it was a meditation retreat period. And I had, it was one of my early trips to India and I was a little sick with some digestive problems as happens often in that part of the world. I'm sure some of you are familiar with that. And yet I remember at the time feeling so happy and contented. And I remember saying to myself, if this is the way my life will be, you know, a little bit sick and sleeping under the, the watt <laughs> on a straw pallet, I thought I'd be just happy as a clam the rest of my life. <laughs> Living that way, I mean, who knows? But it sure felt that way to me. And so it wasn't any really groovy conditions that had anything to do with that feeling of contentment, of happiness. Last winter, uh, I went again to Burma, but the retreat had been canceled because of the protests about a year ago now in the fall. And Sayadaw uh, Ulakana decided to cancel the retreat because he was worried about people's safety. But I had a ticket and I decided to go anyway, mainly to bring in the, the funds for the Metadana project. And it was such a worthwhile trip for me to go. I, I convinced Carol was there, and I got Carol and another friend, Narayan, to come with me because I wanted company. And uh, we had such fun arranging to give away the money, and uh, there was such happiness in offering in this way. So the practice of giving can bring such happiness to, to us and really can increase this feeling of inter plenty. I actually gave away all my money. I had to borrow some money from Carol to get 
to, to get out of Burma, so I didn't arrive in Bangkok penniless. I did pay her back. But I, I never feel good if I leave there with any money because people are so poor. So these feelings of, of inner abundance and this happiness that comes from practicing generosity of giving, I think very, very naturally lead to another kind of beautiful quality in our hearts. And that's the feeling of gratitude. I think when we practice giving, these feelings of, gener- of gratitude arise very naturally. And to me, they seem in a way to be kind of different aspects of the same thing. We all really have so much to feel grateful for, to be grateful for in our lives, but we don't all the time take, take a moment to really reflect on, on this, to really count our blessings. It can be easy to see all that's lacking in our lives at times, all that we don't have, and it's less often that we turn our attention to appreciate all that we actually do have, all that we can be grateful for in our lives. I remember someone once told me they had a practice to once a day just bring to mind to recollect five things they were grateful for. And it can be really interesting to do this. You know, if we do take a moment to reflect, we'll see there's so many things, even just simple things that we tend to take for granted, like we have food and shelter and here warmth. I mean, those... I don't know how the birds and the animals make it through the nights in the winter like this. It's incredible to me. Those chickadees, where are they? <laughs> I guess they're in hollow places in trees, but it's bitter out there with the wind. We have friends in our lives. Think how, how it would be to, to not have friendship. We have the opportunity to come to a retreat and hear the Dhamma. Said this is incredibly rare and precious thing in the world. So a lot of gratitude can arise when we think of that. So it can really be a great practice to consciously turn our attention towards all that we have, all that's good in our lives and all that we have to be grateful for. This is from Henry Nguyen. In the past, I always thought of gratitude as a spontaneous response to the awareness of gifts received. But now I realize that gratitude can also be lived as a discipline. The discipline of gratitude is the explicit effort to acknowledge that all I am and have is given to me as a gift of love, a gift to be celebrated with joy. Somewhere in the Buddhist texts, it's, I wasn't able to track it down, but I know it's in there. It's said that there are two kinds of people who are very rare in the world. Someone who gives without expecting anything in return, and someone who is grateful towards anyone who does want a kindness. So if we really undertake a practice like cultivating generosity of giving, 
or really any of the wholesome qualities that we might practice cultivating in our lives. And if we really see it as a practice, really undertake it in that way, bring our attention, our intention there, then we can start to see the whole path as a ripening of these beautiful qualities, the ripening of these paramis in our hearts and minds. And this ripening process begins to have the effect of purifying the mind and our hearts of the forces of of greed and hatred and confusion. When we practice in this way, the, the force of these things is weakened in our minds, in our hearts. And this really can form the basis and the foundation for insight and wisdom to arise. So I'm going to close tonight with one more quotation from the Itivutaka. I think this is quite lovely. It's an excerpt from a longer verse. One who shares his wealth with some, but does not gladly give to others, is only like a local shower. In such a way, the wise describe him. But one who rains down bountiful gifts, gladly giving here and there out of compassion for all beings, and who always says, give, give. This type of person is like a giant cloud filled with rain, thundering and pouring down, refreshing water everywhere, drenching the highlands and the lowlands too, generous without distinctions. So let's just sit quietly for a few minutes and I'll ring the bell. Thank you for your kind attention. And there's uh, time now for some walking meditation. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.